Hello, this is Bezik on Stocks. I'm your host, Ian Bezik. It's been quite the week in the stock market. I was planning on having this episode just be about biotech, but uh, given the developments between when I scheduled this episode and today, I think it's good to talk about some of what's going on in the market more generally and uh, some quick comments on Peloton and uh, Netflix as well. And I'll be happy to open the lineup to discuss whatever's been on your mind. Obviously, it's been a crazy couple of days in the market, so very curious to hear uh, what's on your radars and what trades you're looking at, that sort of stuff as well. Uh, I want to say off the top that uh, it's been kind of crazy where I am. Lots of people getting the Rona. Uh, my wife has it, and so we're taking care of their daughters this week. So I've slept very little, so I apologize in advance if uh, I if I'm incoherent tonight, but doing my best. Uh, with that out of the way, yeah, so let's get to the market. Uh, it looked like we were going to get a decent recovery today. And then, uh, obviously, the Peloton news hit that they're suspending production of their bikes uh, around lunchtime. And as soon as that happened, the market went from very green and rolled over and then rolled over some more and ended up deep in the red. Uh, and yeah, if you'd told me at the start of the year that the market would be tanking because of uh, Peloton, of all things, I would have been very surprised, but here we are. It goes to show the randomness of markets that you never know, uh, just what sort of thing will cause, will get people's attention. Uh, I think there are some interesting investing lessons from Peloton, its rise and fall. Uh, for one thing, if you look through investing history, fitness, uh, fitness stocks have always been fads. Going back to like the 1960s, you had fads in uh, bowling stocks. Really, there was a bowling craze. The stocks went up 510x in cross-country running. And then more recently, Nordic Track. There was a, a stock uh, promotion around that. You had a rollerblading uh, IPO that went up big time in the late 90s. That one was particularly interesting because it uh, became very popular in New York. There were a lot of uh, analysts that enjoyed rollerblading to work, and so they assumed that it would get popular, but it never really caught on outside of uh, the East Coast. And I think that's kind of what we saw with Peloton as well. That, As one of my followers said on Twitter today, it was the perfect stock to uh, kind of a, appeal to an affinity. People on Wall Street, people in San Francisco love the, the Peloton because it's, uh, it combines exercise with, with high tech. It's kind of a very nice niche, kind of on-brand sort of thing. Everyone wanted to be seen with a Peloton. It was kind of the perfect stock for for the COVID environment, but uh, if you went to the middle of America or particularly overseas, very few people are using Pelotons. And so people in New York, people in LA may have had a sense that the product was far more popular than it actually was. And then obviously as soon as the pandemic has started to wind down, uh, demand for Pelotons collapsed. Now they have tons of them piling up in their warehouse. So you slash production and the stock price has what, gone from 180 to 25 now. So that's what down like 80%. Um, yeah, and so I think this is a good example of how investing history protects you. If you've read about past cycles, you'd see the the craze in bowling stocks, the craze in Nordic track, the craze in rollerblading stocks, and see, hey, this is a. It's unlikely that uh, this fitness stock is going to be the one that makes it big. If you think back through history, how many uh, how many compounders, how many long term winners have we had in the fitness industry? It's very few, uh, and this goes to one of my. One of my tenets of investing, which is it's better to invest in vices rather than virtues. Uh, at the end of the day, people like to do stuff that gives them immediately immediate pleasure and happiness. And so if you buy things like fast food, if you buy uh, alcohol, tobacco, caffeine, this sort of stuff, the human demand is always there. Good times, bad times, 
uh, gambling, another one. Like that's stuff people always want, but the stuff that that is about getting better, the kind of stuff that you do at the the start of the year, the New Year's resolutions, like I'm going to eat more salad, I'm going to work out more, I'm going to learn a new language, that sort of stuff. It doesn't tend to be durable, and so people are looking at stocks like Duolingo now, and hey, Duolingo is a great product. I think it's very useful for language learning. But uh, people are comparing it to Netflix, and it's like, well, of course, people are going to use Netflix because they want to, they want to watch movies. But people really don't want to learn a language unless they really need to. And so, the odds of Duolingo uh, having the sort of long-term success that a Netflix uh, has is fairly low. Like you see, recent IPOs of Sweet Green, which is a salad chain, and Dutch Bros, which is a coffee chain named at Millennials that sells very high sugar, high caffeine drinks. It's like, which one of these is more likely to be a long-term winner, the one that sells salads or the one that sells uh, caffeine and sugar? If you go with human nature, you're going to get that question right most of the time. And so that would be kind of my quick take on Peloton. I think it's the sort of thing that uh, teaches some some useful or reinforces some useful lessons on investing. Uh, where do I think Peloton goes from here? I would point to GoPro, I think, is a good example of where it will end up. You may not realize it, but... GoPro is actually still in business and still quoted on the NASDAQ. Uh, actually, some of you may not even know, but GoPro sells kind of high-end cameras for filming live events. Like if you're going, I don't know, skiing or bungee jumping or stuff like that. Uh, they've got these great cameras for that, but very niche market. I think it IPO'd at 30 bucks and went up to 100 because people are like, oh, this is going to be huge. Live streaming, YouTube, whatever. And then uh, they sold a GoPro to everyone that wanted a GoPro. And that was pretty much the end of the story. The stock went from 100 to 10. Uh, and then it's just kind of sat between 5 and 10 for the last 7 or 8 years. Uh, it doesn't go up. It doesn't go down. It just sits there. Uh, and I think that's what you'll see with Peloton uh, in the pandemic. Everyone that wanted a Peloton bought a Peloton. And now uh, pretty much the market's tapped out. They've stopped production of the bikes. They lost some subscription revenues from the existing users. But... The overall user base likely won't grow much. They're firing, what, 40% of their workforce. So there'll be much less advertising, much less outreach to get new customers. So they'll have the user base they have now, but uh, not much growth. Stock probably doesn't go anywhere. People are looking for it to get bought out or something, but uh, it'll probably stay independent and just linger 20 bucks, 30 bucks a share, whatever. So uh, yeah, these sorts of stocks usually don't go out with any high drama. They just kind of disappear into the background. Like stocks like... Groupon are still publicly traded. Like that was a, a big thing 10 years ago and now no one cares, but the stock's still around. So uh, that's generally what happens to fads. Um, yeah, so Netflix, uh, after the bell, Netflix announced earnings that came up well short of expectations and the stock collapsed. I think it's down 20%. I didn't check the last quote, but somewhere around 20%. Uh, they blamed currency for a lot of their problems because they have a huge international market and the dollar's gone up. So like, I have a Netflix Mexico subscription, so I pay them in pesos, and as the peso goes down, they get less revenue. So I guess I blame that for the miss, but uh, it seems more likely that the real problem is just that the pandemic ended, so there's fewer people signing up for subscriptions. Um, they couldn't film a lot of new content during the pandemic uh, due to the uh, various restrictions around travel and uh, masking and so on, and so uh, it's been hard to get new new. There's not been a lot of new content on Netflix. I mean, there's been some stuff, but uh, I think Ozark is dropping tomorrow. That's a, been a pretty good show for them historically, so maybe that will drum up some interest. But uh, yeah, not, not a lot of new content, and there's so many competitors. This is a big problem that I've had with streaming for a while. It's just 
uh, if it were two or three players, I think it would all work. But you've got like 15 different streaming services that are all buying for people's bucks. Uh, people don't want eight different subscriptions. They don't want eight logins. Uh, yeah, as long as you've got companies like Viacom and Discovery and Comcast and all with their own streaming services, it's just a race to the bottom. Like, it's you've got too much content. Everyone is spending so much on original content. Uh, it's just hard to make money. Netflix is trying to raise prices now, so we'll see if they actually have pricing power or not. Uh, I suspect they might. Uh, Netflix certainly has the best platform in terms of user interface and just kind of people are comfortable with it and netflix's reach internationally is unmatched like the amount of content they have in spanish and french and other languages is far beyond anything the other american companies are doing so long term i would love to own netflix uh but i don't think they make much money for the next two three four years until companies like viacom and discovery drop out and just say we can't do it in streaming we're going to license our content to disney or netflix or whoever that's when you start making money when you're only when a consumer only needs two or three subscriptions to get all the content they want rather than 10 subscriptions. This is current model is just crazy. It encourages piracy and password sharing. And like, yeah, we were wanting to watch a movie the other day that wasn't on Netflix. And so we we're just asking around the family, like, who has a password? Because we don't want to sign up for another service for one movie. It's just not practical. Um, if you've been following my work, you know I own Spotify. And I'm, I find Spotify interesting to add now that it's come down a lot. Because unlike in uh, movie streaming and music streaming, there's really only Spotify and uh, Apple Music that have any meaningful market share. And so that's already an oligopoly. You've got two options. And outside of the U.S., you really only have one option because uh, Apple has very limited market penetration outside of uh, the U.S. and a few other rich countries. Uh, I think Spotify is like 70% of the streaming market here in Latin America, for example. And so Spotify already owns the market. Spotify determines what becomes the hits now, more than radio, more than uh, anything else. And so uh, I think over the long term, Spotify says to the record labels, hey, if you want people to hear your songs, you need to uh, give us better licensing agreements, uh, kind of discount your royalties. I think Spotify is a very strong market position because it's really only them and Apple competing for content. But as long as Netflix is competing with with Apple and Amazon and uh, HBO and Viacom. Yeah, as long as there's a million different streaming services out there, I don't think anybody makes much money. And it's just brain damage. I mean, they can make money, but there's so many thousands of stocks we can own. And it's just, is this is Netflix or is Disney Plus? Or are these the best investment ideas that, that we can come up with? And I'd say probably not. Uh, yeah, so that would be my quick takes on Peloton, Netflix. Happy if anyone wants to hop on or, or I'll start going into the other stuff. But if anyone wants to jump in here, happy to open the lineup for a minute. All right, looks like nobody's hopping on. Oh, Gary, got you. Gary, you're on. Hi, Ian, and... Uh... My best to you and your family. I know my daughter, who's in college, has COVID right now. So I hope everybody's well. Thank you. I'm sorry to hear that about your family, but hope everyone's doing all right. Thanks. She said she was better last night, but she's a thousand miles away. So, uh, you know, uh, yep. I, I, think she, I think she'll do fine. Sounds like her whole uh, dormitory at the college has it right now. Yeah, the strain is super uh, infectious, but. Yeah. Uh, yeah, hopefully people um, I have keep a question. doing it. Yeah, go ahead. 
I have a question for you regarding the original topic, biotech, and that I've been looking at the XBI ETF. In fact, I got stopped out of it a couple weeks ago. And looking at the one-year chart of it, it looks an awful lot like ARC. And I'm curious your take on biotech versus ARC and the high-growth tech names. All right. Yeah, that's actually a perfect transition. So I'll, I'll go into the the main uh, topic I have tonight on biotech, and I will address that directly. So thank you. That's a good transition. Uh, all right. Uh, well, yep. Yep. So I'll get you. I'll answer that in just a minute. Uh, but let me open the line for Aaron for a second first. <sighs> yeah, this is a very personal question, but I have, I don't know, a handful of, of Netflix uh, shares that I've had since 95. Uh, but I guess it's oh, a wow. more, uh, yeah. So <laughs> as a, as a, yeah, it's a, it's a good problem to have, but I guess. What was know, it? Uh, was it doing D, uh, DVDs or videotapes by me? Like, what was oh, no, not, sorry, not 1995, since $95. Oh, okay. Yeah. 95. Okay. Gotcha. Yep. Oh, no. Great I, investment. No, I actually, though I have something like that where I got uh, one share of Apple uh, for my bar mitzvah at 13, and it split to like 100-something shares, and the compounding rate is insane. Um, I think in 1995. Um, I guess, so just to make it a broader question, what do you do with something, I guess philosophically, where it's run up a ton, and you'd probably take a huge tax hit, and it's presumably a viable business uh you do you take the tax hit and move on or do you you know knowing that it's a, a com- or assuming that it's a company that's going to have staying power and uh and presumably pricing power do you stick with it uh, i'm i'm sure there's other options but i'm very curious to hear your your thought process on something like that especially i know you've mentioned that you have uh ibm for a very long time and it seems like you're just holding on to it and uh, even though it's been floundering a little bit. Mm-hmm. Yep, that's correct. Uh, great question. Uh, yeah, I would say one option that you could consider is selling call options on the position, particularly well out of the money. Uh, and then the re- uh, so that would give you kind of an extra yield or uh, income from owning the stack. Uh, and the risk to that would just be if the stock goes up so much that the calls went into the money. Uh, but if you wanted to keep owning the stock, um, you could just, if let's say it's Netflix and the stock goes back up to 600 or uh, whatnot, then you could buy back the calls and sell a, a higher call option. But most of the time, if you sell a call well out of the money, uh, that should uh, that should allow you to, to kind of take some volatility off the table while not having to sell the underlying position. Yeah, there's other options positions or uh, potentially you could sell or short uh, competitor or something in the same industry. But yeah, that, get, that might get a little complicated. But yeah, I'd consider looking at call options. But I guess what I'm what I'm asking is, is your, and I'm, I know it's a very stock-specific analysis, but when you've had something that's run up significantly and you know it's a viable company then and you think it has staying power, it, do you have a kind of a, uh, a default or, or I guess maybe to make it more personal, if you're willing to share, like why hold on to IBM if you don't think it's uh, uh, necessarily a, you know, a, an exciting stock for you. Uh, 
I don't know, I'm putting words in your mouth, but I, I'm, I'm having a hard time articulating the question well. No, no, I understand. Uh, let me use a, a different example. Uh, let's say like a consumer staple sto- uh, food stock, for example, like once a, a McCormick or Diageo or Brown Foreman or something runs up a lot. Because uh, on most of those, I have doubles or more on some of my original cost basis. So I'd have a pretty, like if I wanted to sell McCormick or Diageo tomorrow, I'd have a pretty significant tax fit. And so when I'm thinking about selling it, I'm thinking I sell it, I get those proceeds minus the 20% that goes to the government. So what I need to buy essentially needs to be 125% as good as what I just, like say I'm selling something at 35 times earnings, then I would need to get something that's at least like 25% cheaper because I'm losing, if I get $100, like 20 bucks, whatever goes to the government. So I only get to put 80 in the new investment. And so it was $80 of like, say I sell Brown Foreman tomorrow. Uh, if I sell $100 of Brown Foreman and get to buy $80 of some other alcohol stock with the proceeds, is that a better swap? And then I would probably incorporate some margin of error for my own uh, miscalculation, like, uh, I would say I want to get something where even if I'm only getting $70 of the new investment compared to $100 of the old investment, I'm still getting more earnings power. I'm getting more dividend or I'm getting more free cash flow or some metric. Uh, so that's how I think about it. Like in terms of after I paid the tax bill, am I still getting more uh, of a business that I want to own than I gave up when I sold? Okay, that makes sense. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and on IBM specifically, I would just say that I own very few large cap value trap type of stocks, which I think is what most people would consider IBM, and that's probably a fair uh, analysis of it. Uh, and so I'm content to own it because I own very few stocks like that. Uh, and so just as a kind of factor diversification, if uh, old out of favor blue chips get popular for some reason, I think. I wouldn't be surprised if IBM goes up to a 16 or 18 PE, which would be a lot of upside from here. Um, but, but yeah, I, I wouldn't recommend most people own IBM. But yeah, I don't want to pay tax, and I don't own very many other stocks like it. So I view it as a decent diversification chip, even though it's far from my favorite investment. Got it. That makes sense. Thank you. Absolutely. Lucas, uh, you're up. <laughs> Uh, buenas noches, Ian. How are you? Buenas noches. Do, I'm doing all right. Hey, um, I was kind of surprised by your comments on Netflix versus Spotify. You know, uh-huh. what was what was surprising about it is that it seems to me that with Netflix, the end game is foreseeable and really kind of like you described it, that eventually the lesser scale competitors have to drop out because their cost per users, you know, cost of developing content, cost of whatever per user are high relative to Netflix. And Netflix is a profitable business, you know, on, on a gap basis today, um, whereas the other streaming uh, players are, are struggling. So that's number one. I guess that, that was a surprise to me. And, and because, because that, that's a very different market structure than Spotify, where Spotify, you know, the the, the majority of their cost is variable, right? They pay per stream and they don't, they don't have a cost advantage versus um, other players. And I was kind of surprised you didn't even mention uh, YouTube music, um, which I'm actually a subscriber of because they, they cross subsidize it with uh, 
you know, YouTube premium, so you don't have ads there for the same price. So um, it seems to me that Netflix is kind of a more risky security, right? There's more leverage because there's a bigger fixed cost, whereas a Spotify, you kind of have this big variable cost. I don't know, any thoughts and comments on that? Yeah, uh, I think you're absolutely right. Uh, yeah, I think I think Netflix has a very clear advantage versus the other streaming companies. And if you're willing to own it for, say, five or more years, I think you'll probably do well, particularly given how much the price has dropped over the past two or three months. Uh, but I think until the market sees uh, other competitors start to give up, I think until you see consolidation, the stock's going to struggle. So uh, you can probably buy it at the same price in six or 12 months as you can buy it today, if not cheaper. Uh, yeah, and Spotify, you're right. Google is is a competitor. Uh, uh, yeah, uh, what you say about variable costs is Yeah, true. so they, they pay per stream, right? Um, whereas Netflix pays an upfront cost to develop content, but then their marginal cost is very, very low. So the operating leverage that uh, Netflix enjoys is much higher than, than Spotify. And I, if I understand correctly, the rate that Spotify pays is you know contractually determined, and it's a rate that's basically the same rate for anyone um, that that's a streaming provider. And that rate kind of climbs every year uh, in the first quarter again contractually. Yeah, uh, my understanding is that a portion like. I think it's seventy around seventy percent of their revenues go to the record labels, and then they get to keep the rest. Uh, but like, if I stream a thousand songs one month, and then I stream ten songs the next month, that is still a split between. Like, if I stream a thousand songs, I'm not causing Spotify a huge loss. They pay a smaller portion per stream that I make uh, to each artist. Whereas I stream, if I stream very little, then more of it goes. That's my understanding. Maybe it's different between the different geographies, but. Uh, I think the big issue with Spotify is that the record labels are just taking too much of the overall pie. Uh, but as other players, uh, as your Pandora's and Sirius XM's and uh, Amazon's and other uh, loose share, uh, uh, the market keeps consolidating to Spotify, which Spotify has been putting up tremendous market share growth. Um, I think Spotify will go to the record labels and say, hey, the 70% cut for you guys isn't working. We need 60%. And once you do that, you make money and in the meantime Spotify is continuing to build podcasts and other stuff uh, that will give them some other avenues, merchandise, tickets. Uh, I think having the platform that that almost everyone uses, particularly XUS, is just I, I see that as a huge advantage. Got it. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Anything else? Oh. Yoni Yoni, you're up. All right, Yoni is dropped. Um, so yeah, let's actually get to Gary's question and get to the topic I'd planned on biotech. Oh, Yoni's back. Uh, all right, Yoni. Yoni. All right. Um, So on biotech, yes, as oh, let's see. Aaron. Hey, uh, Yoni's my brother. I was 
been telling him about how great the podcast or the the show is, and he wanted to. I think he's having some technical difficulties, but he wanted to ask if you knew anything about uh, Smith and Wesson, uh, given that they have strong free cash flow and no debt. And so I know that might be a little bit out of your uh, normal wheelhouse because I've never heard you talk about them. But I told him might as well just might as well ask and see if that's anything you have an opinion on. Yeah, uh, thank you. I appreciate the positive word of mouth. So thank you. Uh, means a lot. Uh, yeah. So I don't. I don't follow that one in particular. I will say, and uh, I'm kind of previewing my own uh, content coming up, maybe in a future digest. But I've been looking at the sporting goods stores, uh, like Sportsman's Warehouse, for example. Uh, but there's a bunch of them that are all trading around like six, seven times earnings. Uh, people seem to think that their sales are are going to collapse post COVID. Uh, but, uh, what we've been seeing in the sales trends for, for this holiday season in 2021, the sales still seem to be good. And so you've got businesses that are exceptionally cheap. Uh, I don't think the e-commerce risk is as high in these specialized goods as they would be in mass merchandise. They're just tons of cash. Like Sportsman's Warehouse was supposed to be acquired, but the deal fell through. So they're getting cash from that management and, uh, there will be a buyback. They're opening more stores. It's like, yeah, 13, 13% starting earnings yield. Earnings should be at least flat, if not going up a little bit. Uh, yeah, I think there's some very interesting uh, opportunities there. And obviously, if you're bullish on gun sales, like if you if you think the current political environment, for example, is going to drive more gun sales, that's a big piece of the business at the sporting goods stores. So I think that's a kind of interesting way to play that trend. But no, I don't. I don't follow the, the gun makers directly. Oh, all right. Aaron, you dropped back off the line. So, all right. I hope that answers that. I will get to the main topic here on biotech. As Gary was alluding to, uh, biotech has looked very much like it's another disruption ETF, uh, like one of the ARC ETFs. I believe XBI is the main there's two biotech ETFs. XBI is uh, kind of includes more biotechs, and then IBUB is uh, market cap. Oh, I see you, Yoni. Thanks for the messages. Yeah, and uh, try to call in in the future. I'm sure uh, you'll get the microphone working in the future. Uh, so yeah, so IBB is kind of larger cap biotech, and then XBI is more broad based, covering the whole industry. I believe XBI is now down 48 percent. Uh, it keeps dropping every day, but something like 48% from its peak last year. If it drops another $3 a share from where it closed today, it will be the largest drawdown, drawdown in 20 years for the, that ETF. So larger than 2008, larger than COVID, uh, larger than the biotech crash ahead of the 2016 presidential election. So it's uh, grim times in the biotech industry. I think it's underappreciated by generalist investors. Uh just because most of us don't really follow biotech on a day-to-day basis and kind of all of these unprofitable stocks have been getting hammered. And so uh, it might be kind of in a world where SPACs are collapsing, meme stocks are collapsing, ARC stocks are collapsing, kind of biotech goes under the radar. It's not really uh, the, the thing we're watching. But I think biotech has more merit as an asset class than a lot of the other stuff that's getting crushed. And so in a market where we're just saying, hey, anything that's unprofitable, we're going to knock all of it down 50% indiscriminately. I, th- I would much rather be a buyer of biotech here than of, uh, I don't know, electric vehicle specs, for example. Uh, 
But uh, that out of the way, I want to stress that I highly recommend uh, for most people that they stick to ETFs. Uh, individual biotechs is an extremely risky, difficult game. At the hedge fund I worked at, I covered biotech for for a year, uh, primarily from the short side, but it's extremely difficult uh, research for even a hedge fund analyst that's getting paid to do that is their day job. The science is challenging, and there's two levels of challenge. There's the science part, like does this drug work or not, which generally requires knowledge of the disease in question, the type of drug that you're using, the methodology that they're targeting. Uh, and then you also need to know statistics uh, in terms of uh, there's tons of analysis of how they break down the data and is this statistically significant and they use like, oh, it's statistically significant against this control group or against that. And if the drug doesn't work against their primary endpoint, then they'll say, uh, oh, against 13-week data, against 26-week data. Like they come up with these new data points so they can say in this uh, smaller sample size than the drug worked or not. And so you need to both understand kind of the mechanism of how drugs work uh, and the disease that you're targeting and then also have a good uh, understanding of how how people use statistics. Uh, my degree is in economics, so I took, uh, kind of, I took uh, what's the name of that class? But basically statistics for economists. So I actually understood the stats part, but even then the science part was very difficult. At the hedge fund, we had a, we would call expert networks, like we'd call doctors and say, like, translate this from science to English for us, please. And so that being the case, I could kind of understand what I was doing, but uh, I would say it was very difficult. And the vast majority of people should not try, including myself, uh, to understand most individual biotech companies. And I'd warn you, even most of what you see on the internet, like if you go on Seeking Alpha or you go on Motley Fool, or those writers generally don't know what they're talking about either. They may act like they do, but uh, most of the biotech research that I see that's free online is uh, not very good. So be very careful. 90% of listed biotech companies will never generate revenues. Uh, the vast majority of drugs that make it through phase one clinical trials will fail uh, either in phase two where they're tested primarily for safety, and then for phase three, where they're tested for efficacy. Uh, it's, not hard to, it's not hard to make a drug show uh, effects in a small, uh, favorable trial at the beginning, and it's not that hard to show that a drug is safe. If a drug is inert, like if you just uh, give people a placebo, it will usually be safe. So a lot of biotech companies essentially have placebos, and they can get uh, quite a ways through through clinical development, uh, even with a placebo or with something that's profoundly unlikely to work, just because, hey, it's not causing side effects in people. So uh, you get to phase three and then, oh, the drug doesn't work, then the stock crashes. Uh, but I'd say a huge, a huge chunk of listed biotechs are management enrichment schemes, particularly look for companies where the CEO, CFO, all of those have been at other failed biotechs before. They tend to just jump from one to another. They'll run it for a while, issue a lot of stock, pay themselves nice salaries, buy a corporate jet, have fun for a few years, and then when the drug doesn't work in phase three trials, then they'll just kind of leave and then go found another biotech company for a different uh, condition in a few years. It's a big grift. So, yeah, I'd say be very careful. Uh, this is totally different. If a biotech company already has an approved drug and is generating revenue, then I'd say most, then it's a much safer investment. And it's fine to look into, but uh, the pre, pre-revenue pre stage biotechs, be very careful. 
uh, I think one thing that people fail to appreciate is that you have no cash flow or very little cash flow. Sometimes you get uh, licensing or royalty payments if you have a partner, but you have very little cash flow uh, as a biotech. And so all of your overhead for years as you're developing your drug is paid for out of stock dilution, just them printing up new shares of the stock. So this will kill your returns. If you listen to my 100 baggers episode, uh, the list of companies that actually became 100 baggers was there are very, very few uh, biotechs on that list. And a big part of that is just between the time that they create the drug and then the time that it starts generating revenues, if that happens at all, like if it's one of the 10% of drugs that actually works, they raise capital five, six, seven times. And so your ownership stake is diluted incredibly. And then say it does make it through trials, then you only have 20 years or whatnot on your patent before the drug becomes generic. And so you don't even get to generate revenues for that long if you do succeed. So it's just an incredibly tough business. People have to own the next Genentech or the next uh, Gilead or whatever, but there's a hundred biotechs that fail for every one of those. Uh, yeah. And then for whatever reason, biotech causes a ton of cult behavior. Like before we had AMC and GameStop and crypto, like Dogecoin, before all of that, it was biotech. You would have, People that latch onto these stocks, like like Dendrion, to date myself a little bit, uh, you would like these huge internet forums, thousands of people that would debate every press release out of that stock, and it's just it goes on for years. And the, the people involved don't really know what's going on; they're just kind of hoping the stock will go up, and everything's short sellers. And there was a congressional investigation into that one. It was like, yeah, it was all the craziness that you saw at AMC and GameStop before those. So I'd be very careful with getting too attached to any one biotech company. Uh, it's a very difficult industry. It drives people crazy. Uh, be very wary of investing in a biotech because someone in your family has a particular illness or disease. Uh, the vast majority of the time you would do better making good investments in other industries and then donate money to a charity or something that helps the lives of people affected with that disease. Uh, because in general, trying to give money to a biotech company that's trying to cure a disease is not going to, it just kind of compounds people's pain. I've seen a lot of people that have lost their life savings uh, investing in a drug because they hoped it would work. And yeah, it's just, that's not a place that most people want to go. So be very careful there. All right, so that's kind of the, the negative stuff. Now we can get to the more positive stuff. I like the ETFs. The ETFs are generally good. Diversification, they... I think XBI owns like 100 different stocks. So that kind of any one drug not working or any one corrupt management team won't sink the investment. Uh, over time, biotech has made money. Uh, I think it's underperformed tech fairly considerably, but it does tend to go up over time. Uh, and as I said, this is within a couple points of the largest drawdown in the history of the ETF, or at least dating back to 2000. Uh, so historically... I think if you buy a sector after it's gone down more than it did during COVID, more than it did during 2008, uh, your expected return should be pretty good. Um, why has biotech gone down so much? Uh, you had a problem with too many IPOs in 2021. Virtually anything with a pulse could either go out, uh, could IPO or do a spec. So I think you had what, like 300 and something biotechs go public last year. And in a normal year, it'd be closer to like 75. So way too much supply in the market. Uh, you only have so many biotech specialty hedge funds, mutual funds to absorb all that demand. So you have just way too many biotech companies out there without enough investors. Uh, it's basic economics, too much supply, you flood the market. 
meanwhile, the number of catalysts available for the sector was way down. Uh, generally, you need trials to advance your drugs to market, and it was very hard to do trials during COVID, particularly ones that involved hospital enrollment because hospitals were keeping their beds for COVID patients. This was the same problem the medical device industry had. Like uh, Hospitals didn't want to do elective surgeries. Like, as long as COVID's ravaging uh, your municipality, a hospital isn't going to do a joint replacement, and they also aren't going to do a speculative uh, phase two cancer trial drug either. So the number of clinical readouts for biotech drugs has dropped dramatically over the past year due to just the, the backlog of trials being uh, just, yeah, uh, I'm kind of getting twisted up here, but you get the idea. It's just, there's not very much data coming out now. Uh, meanwhile, there's way too many biotech companies that are in public. So there's kind of this backlog. People are just kind of waiting for something to happen. And uh, apathy leads to lower prices. Uh, but I think things get better from here for the biotech industry. Uh, like Gary said, uh, it's just kind of gotten indiscriminately thrown out. Like the chart looks exactly the same as ARC or uh, ETF of SPACs, or that sort of stuff. I don't think people are really paying attention. They're just like, oh, this doesn't make money. It doesn't have cash flow. It doesn't pay me a dividend, so I don't want it anymore. Uh, I've heard rumors of some hedge funds in the biotech space getting liquidated. Uh, uh, definitely looked like some margin call behavior a couple of days ago in some of the biotech stocks. Like A bunch of them all went down several percent at the same time, which looked like liquidations, which generally when people start being involuntary sellers, that's a good time to start thinking about buying from them. Catalyst going forward, uh, one of the big headwinds for biotechs uh, in 2016, and then again recently, there was expectations of uh, limits on drug pricing. Uh, I believe uh, presidential candidate Hillary Clinton back in 2016 had said that biotech companies were charging too much and that one of her actions was going to be to, to crack down on people like Martin Screlly and other uh, pharma executives that were taking advantage of drug pricing and biotech crashed like 35% heading into that election because people believed that she was going to win and, uh, and greatly limit profits in the industry. Uh, this happened again coming out of 2020. Uh, candidates like Bernie Sanders that said that pharma should be nationalized uh, and that the get rid of profits in the industry. Obviously, that wasn't Biden's position, but a lot of people in the party were pushing him for uh, strict limits on pharma pricing, uh, kind of like you see in some markets like in Europe or in Canada, where drug prices are much cheaper. So it appeared that the market had priced in a serious possibility with the Democrats controlling Congress, Senate, presidency that there would be uh, uh, big limits on pricing. But as it turns out, I think what they got into the the Build Back Better sort of thing was just limits on pricing of 10 individual drugs, which is uh, obviously not very meaningful. And then going forward, uh, the betting markets have the Republicans, so like 80% odds of putting back Congress uh, this fall. Obviously, Biden's approval rating has plummeted over the past couple of months. Uh, so it looks very likely there will be divided government and under divided government, there won't be any changes to drug pricing. That's almost a guarantee. And then in 2024, the betting markets are looking pretty good for uh, Republicans holding control of a minimum Congress and quite possibly the presidency again. And the Republicans have zero interest in regulating drug prices. So uh, I see very little political risk to the biotech industry for the next few years, whereas that had been on the table before. Uh, the COVID headwind should be going away soon. Uh, fingers crossed. Uh, Omicron will be the last uh, big disruption. And then our industries like medical supplies and biotech that have been impacted by that uh, should do better. 
as to a lot of to the extent that the biotech industry has been getting attention it's all been on the vaccine makers like pfizer and moderna and novavax have kind of sucked up all the oxygen in the biotech space for the past year but as uh, we get past vaccines i think people finally start looking at hey there's still cancer and there's still uh, diabetes and all these other uh, long-term problems that we need to deal with uh, so hopefully companies other than vaccine companies will get attention from the market again uh, also, the IP win- uh, IPO window has slammed shut. Nobody's going to bring a biotech company to market with the sector down 40%. So 2021, you had way too many IPOs and not enough demand. Now you're going to have no new demand, uh, no new supply, excuse me. So as demand comes back, prices can improve. Uh, and then there will be consolidation with the price of biotech companies down so much. There's good bargains to be had. Uh, there was a deal this week. Zogenics just got taken over. I think you'll see more biotech firms get taken out. Uh, this is kind of a bit of a squishy metric, but the enterprise value of your median listed biotech companies, the amount of cash it has, is down to 1.5 times, meaning that if you buy a biotech company with a market cap of, I don't know, 500 million, that will have like 250 million of cash. Um, and this metric, Normally, biotechs trade at like two and a half to three times their enterprise value to their cash, meaning that people assign a lot of uh, option value to their drugs. But as as their valuation gets closer and closer to their cash, so the risk decreases on a biotech because you're paying less for the drug. Um, I mean, the the amount of cash that a biotech has isn't necessarily the floor of its stock price because over time the biotech will spend its cash to do trials for its drug. So like if a biotech has $5 a share of cash over time, the stock can go below $5, but normally it won't go below 5 in the short run. So say you're paying $7 for a stock with a biotech with $5 of cash. Usually $5 is kind of your floor uh, for at least a, a good while. And so that kind of gives you support. And then overall, like your ratio of your enterprise value to cash is the lowest it's been since 2003, meaning that you're closer to that kind of cash implicit floor than you've been on the sector in 20 years. Uh, yeah, and then finally, biotech has growing long-term uh, demographics in its favor. The population is getting older. It's getting unhealthier. Obesity, uh, diabetes, these sorts of things continue to grow in severity in the population. So we'll have more and more demand for for high-quality drugs. Biotech has developed a lot of new technologies, like your RNA, gene editing, this sort of stuff that uh, should bring a whole new category of potential drugs onto the market and there will be more demand than ever as you have a large demographically large and wealthy generation of retirees that that are willing to pay up for your drugs so i, I see a growing demographic for biotech where something like your arc your, your disruption stocks things like peloton they're they're uh their addressable market is shrinking like everyone that bought a a stay-at-home product last year is not going to buy another one for the next few years so kind of your your addressable market for a lot of the arc stocks is like uh i don't know something like zoom video is going to struggle to get new customers over the next couple of years whereas biotech will have more money going into it presumably um particularly if the baby boomer is hitting retirement age and mass now so long-term demographics much better for biotech than for a lot of the other things that are down a similar amount that would be variety of reasons why I'm bullish on the sector to play it. I uh, can just own the ETFs, XBI or IBB. I personally am short the 3X inverse ETF, LABD, LabD. 
uh, which uh, when biotech goes down, it goes up. But over time, these three X ETFs tend to go to zero. In fact, in the prospectus, it says that this ETF is only own, is only designed to be owned kind of as a day trade. That over time, these ETFs inevitably uh, head towards zero because uh, when the price goes up, they have to add more leverage to maintain their three X exposure, and then when the price goes down, they have to sell. So it's uh, kind of by their own funds prospectus, it's mandated that they buy high and sell low. So I like these as a way of uh, getting exposure to a sector with kind of a built-in advantage tailwind to my back. Uh, for subscribers, we did this with the 3X China fund Yang as well. Uh, China's kind of struggled to get off the lows. Uh, I think the FXI, kind of the main ETF, has been just kind of flat since last summer, but now Yang is down. Yang is the 3X ETF, and I believe it's down 30%. That's just from like one day Baba will Alibaba will be down five percent, the next day it goes up five percent. This sort of thing uh, causes a three X ETF to lose value even when the underlying uh, index is flat. So I think that will happen with biotech now. If you look at the biotech ETFs, they're very volatile. Like every day it's going up or down three, four, five percent. So I think that makes it a, a very interesting time to look at an ETF like LabD as a potential short. Uh, so yeah. That's why I find biotech to be an interesting uh, portion of the market here. I'll open the line up. Uh, let's see, Yanni, if your microphone's working yet or not. Hello? Hello, I hear you. Welcome. Oh, oh thank you so much for answering my question before. I don't know why my microphone wasn't working before, but thank you so much. I don't have any more questions now, but yeah. All you. right, well, thank you for listening. I'm glad you enjoyed it. All right, anyone else? Gary, Lucas, Sarah, and anyone? All right, well, I think we're all probably pretty busy, and I've got a lot of people to take care of here, so happy to call it a night. Thank you all for listening. I appreciate appreciate it, and the word of mouth is appreciated as well, and uh, we'll be in touch again soon. So have a good evening, and hope the market treats you well. Thanks again. Uh, thank you. Yep. Bye.